Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louvre. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. My guest today is Ika Johansson, and we are talking about Swedish metal. Her book is Blood Fire Death, the Swedish metal story. And we're going to be talking about the ups and downs of the metal scene throughout the 90s, including the infamous events depicted in the book and movie Lords of Chaos. Here's just a little bit about the book. In the early 1990s, Swedish musicians revolutionized the international music scene with their groundbreaking interpretations of what metal music could be. Suddenly, the mild-mannered Scandinavian country found itself at the forefront of a new movement with worldwide impact thanks to bands such as Entombed, Dismember, and At The Gates. The birth of black metal drove the culture to even greater extremes, featuring a raw, darker sound and non-ironic death worship. Soon, churches in both Norway and Sweden were aflame, and before long, Satanism emerged as more than just an image. But how did it all start? Why did Sweden become a hotbed for such aggressive, nihilistic music? And who are the people and bands that brought it all about? Blood, Fire, Death, a Swedish metal story recounts the evolution of the genre from the massive amplifier walls of 1970s rock through the church-burning satanic 1990s to the diverse and paradoxical manifestations of the scene today. This book focuses on the phenomena that have propelled the scene forward in an evolution that has not only been musical, but aesthetic and ideological as well. This book is a story about grotesque logos and icons that invoke death and darkness, but also a story of dedication, friendship, community, and profound love for music. Okay, we've got a great conversation ahead of us going back in time through some of the most important events of underground music history in the last few decades. So please, without further ado, welcome Ika Johansson. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Um, I've been looking forward to this podcast. Do you want to say a little bit about your your book and your background as well. So we're talking about Blood, Fire, Death, the Swedish metal story. Okay, my name is Ike Johansson, and I am 49 years old, and I grew up in Gothenburg in the late 80s. I've been a metalhead since I was, well, basically four or five years old when I discovered KISS. And I grew up with the people uh, who formed the bands that would... Um, create what was what is called the Gothenburg sound of death metal. Bands like At the Gates, um, Dark Tranquility and In Flames. And um, we grew up together and I saw the scene happen and was a part of it. And uh, about 20 years later, uh, me and my co-author, Jon Jefferson Klingberg, we decided to uh, try to summarize the birth of the Swedish scene um, by choosing different bands and some subjects um, that we think have been vital to the development of the scene. And uh, so the, bo- the book, Blood, Fire, Death, uh, the Swedish, a Swedish, mu- Swedish metal story came out in Sweden in 2011 and in the States in 2018 on Feral House. 
which is still unbelievable to me that I have a book out on Feral House <laughs> because it's a publishing house I really like. Yes, definitely. So it feels to me like there's metal is a worldwide phenomenon now, and it's not necessarily local, but you know, it's certainly a lot of it comes from the Scandinavian countries. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Mm. I just recently curated an exhibition called uh, Der Harte Norden, the Heavy North, um, at the Nordic embassies in Berlin, in which I tried to answer this question. Why is there so much metal music coming out of the Nordic countries, specifically the Scandinavian countries, uh, as the Nordic countries, um, which are Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland and Iceland? And... um, it's kind of hard to say. Um, Sweden, I mean, Sweden and Norway and also Finland are the major countries. Um, but Denmark had and has Merciful Fate, which has been like a super important pioneering band. But then in Sweden, the death metal uh, started developing at the same time as it did in uh, in the in the US, of course. And then black metal was... Partly born in Sweden through Bathory, a super important band, but you know brought to the world by in the early nineties uh, by the Norwegian bands, of course, and all the violent things that happened there. And Finland has basically just been a provider of super good music and really kind of weird takes on both genres, like ever since the nineties. But people generally talk about our climate. Um, the fact that we have so much darkness in the winter and so much light in the summer, which can actually be equally hard to deal with the fact that it's uh, it just never turns dark. I mean, as you can see uh, in the back of me, that's the window and it's uh, past 9 p.m. OK, and it's not going to it's not going to go dark for hours. And and mentally that can take a toll on you, too. And in the in the wintertime, it goes dark at like 2 p.m. And then it doesn't get light again until like 9 a.m. And so that's one thing. And also the cold and the fact that we live up here, which I'm guessing people in Canada and, of course, parts of Russia and other parts of the world that is up in this part of the hemisphere, it it affects the way you are as a person. Uh, We are generally thought as pretty taciturn, pretty introverted, maybe not the most social people. Uh, we tend to keep things inside. That's why a lot of Scandinavians love coming to the States, because here there's this kind of repression of the self that it's like, don't think you're anything. Don't hmm. believe that you are special. And why, when you why come is to that? the States, and it's why like, whoa, everything is possible. Why, you know? why would you say that attitude is is prevalent there, that, that uh, you can't be anything? Because in the it's U.S., that, people people kind of idolize the Scandinavian countries in in the U.S. and see them as a paradise, but I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. Well, that was before socialism and our uh, healthcare was kind of whittled down. <laughs> it was a paradise in some ways. Let me say, in some ways, uh, with you know government funded healthcare and education and such, but. You know, with the privatization of everything, the globalization of everything, that's not the same as it was in the 70s and 80s. But um, I think it's, of course, the, the oh, it's the old Christian uh, beliefs that have has um, influenced a lot of the countries here. And that that also, you know, it's the kind, it's the kind of Protestant Christian thinking that you know, is kind of anti-individualist. And what that kind of mentality um results in many things like a theory is that that's why we express ourselves so violently in the music because we're most of us up here aren't very violent people and especially people in the metal scene are pretty like calm people okay except for some black metalers of course and there's always exceptions to that rule but i think uh, many people think that that has to do with it like the kind of lid that you put on yourself up here um like in the way that society works. So that can be one reason. Also the Swedish, or at least also the Scandinavian sounds of metal are pretty heavily influenced by folk music. Um, There's a melancholy in the folk music that has affected uh, the music from these countries as well a lot. That I was not aware of. So what is the connection to to folk, folk music? And would you say that metal is, you know, in a way a type of folk music? (laughs) 
it's not an it's not in a way a type of folk music, but um, the Scandinavian metal bands or the Nordic metal bands have been pretty affected by the melodies of folk music, um, especially Swedish death metal, especially the one the metal from Gothenburg has been quite influenced by that. And there's there there also you know folk metal like pagan metal, Viking metal, which is basically different uh, sub-genres of a very folk-influenced uh, kind of metal where you use traditional folk um, instruments like uh, violins, accordions, hurdy-gurdies even. Um, not my kind of metal, but it's huge, especially in Germany. But it's pretty big up here as well. Um, but I think it's it's basically, we're brought up with folk music. It's It's always been around us. So I think it has... Um, affected the musicality and the way you write harmonies and the way you write the way you kind of uh, just put the music together Hmm. interesting this brings me to um, i think probably the the thing about this subject that is most interesting to me and probably definitely the most interesting to people listening to this podcast is the religious dimension of um of metal you've mentioned you know paganism christianity Obviously, there's a lot of interest in the occult in 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 and Satanism in in some of these mm-hmm. bands, and that has always fascinated me because although I've never been a metalhead, really, I'm a goth, you know, more <laughs> more mellow. But um, although I, you know, but I've known and been friends with tons, and that has something that has always struck me about it is there really does seem to be this kind of pagan revival or survival even in it, and that. Maybe a better way to put that is that in metal, there seems to be this really, there seems to be a conversation happening about what is religion, what is the nature of of uh, um, individual, you know, even ethnic identity, things like this. Um, and that's just something that I'm really interested in, if you want to address that. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's it's very different. I mean, to begin with, the book is about extreme metal, which is basically death and black metal. Um, death metal is quite unpolitical and unintellectual, um, people would say, at least in the beginning. I wouldn't say it is that today, but um, religion, Satanism and the occult is pretty much exclusively uh, a subject within black metal. Um, just to clarify that for your viewers, it's a generalization, but just to clarify that. So in the beginning, when the scenes evolved, um, you know, these were teenagers that started these genres back in the early 80s. And of course, when you're a teenager, just, you you want to explore everything and anything that seems dangerous or that the adult world doesn't like. So then it was like a mishmash of horror movies um, Satanism, uh, most often, you know, Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, kind of Satanism, and um, and just basically what you intellectually as a teenager could, you know, learn and and um, experiment with. And I remember I've been to like, you know, you were at a, someone's 80-year-old birthday party and someone had found a bat and we're going to you know, sacrifice this bat to the gods and Satan. You know, it was that kind of level of stuff. You were drinking like light beer and just thinking you're in this black ritual. But but that's what it was in the beginning because you're young. And, um, and uh, but then, I mean, people in, especially Norway and some bands in Sweden as well, started taking this uh, more seriously and, and reading up on... Uh, more um i mean i myself is not very knowledgeable within the different uh like the literature the occult literature on top i mean of course i had necronomicon and uh, the book of satan you yes, know the class the required reading of like a 16 year old but yeah. um but people started delving deeper into it and reading other uh types of literature and uh, and books and and uh but in the beginning it was if we talk about the Norwegian scene, which was the first, you know, where the whole, that part of the, the genre was established, there was this um, um, band called, uh, there is this band called Mayhem. And um, 
they wanted to take things further. Also, you know, as a teenager, you just want to up the ante the entire time. Who can play faster? Who can be the most evil? Who can be the most violent? And they were a really good band. And uh, they got a uh, singer that moved over from Sweden called Pelle Dead. And together they really, you know, delved into uh, trying to make the most evil music ever. And before he laid down singing tracks, he had found a dead raven in the woods and he kept that dead bird in a plastic bag and he, you know, inhaled the fumes of death before laying, you know, <laughs> down the tracks just to emulate death. He uh, he dug his stage clothes uh, into the earth. So, you know, to try uh, and emulate like the most rotten um feel ever and also this was a pretty small group of people um and um the whole story that started that was that um this guy Pelle um committed suicide and um when the guitarist Euronymous uh, discovered him he instead of calling the ambulance he went to the nearest gas stations and brought a uh, disposable camera and he took pictures of the body and he had shot himself in the brain and the head and they took photos and decided that this should be the promo photos for our next album. You know, that's, you know, when you, when you, when you're in, when you're in a group and you're also a teenager and your empathy isn't really developed and you pressure each other to push limits. So, you know, to them, this was kind of normal uh, which it wasn't to all of them, but so the band, like the, the bass player dropped out of the band because he thought that this was just too extreme. But this kind, this spread to the burgeoning underground scene and everything, everyone was like, oh, Mayhem is the most serious band. And then uh, Euronymous, the guy who took the photo, started a record company. He had a record company and he started a record store and there people started... Um, started uh, meeting and having meetings and rituals and they called themselves the black circle and um, tried to experiment with satanism and i mean i wasn't part of it i don't know what happened but were, were you around the scene at that time sorry were you around the scene during when all this stuff was happening i was around the scene but i was in sweden okay and and this is in norway this is in oslo and um and then churches started burning in 92. Uh, what, also one thing, Sweden is a much more secular country than Norway is. Norway has been lots more, um, they, they were even run by a minister back in those days. Uh, you know, you could never find anything to shop on a Sunday mm. ever in Norway back in those days. So like the Swedish bands never really had to rebel against Christ the Christianity because here it's not been a thing really. Right. Right. Um, as it also hasn't in Denmark uh, or, uh, or Iceland for that matter. That, that's um, kind of funny just in a parallel to the U S where you, you know, we have super Christian areas and the, the bands that mm -hmm. start there are all rebelling against Christianity. And then you have yeah. bands that started like San Francisco and they're like, what are you talking about? You know, this is not an exactly. <laughs> yeah. We just want to party and play fast. And right. Just right. Riff out. <laughs> yeah, so it's very different, but you know, so a lot of things happened in like between ninety-two and ninety-four. Churches were burning, a person in a in a prominent band murdered a homosexual man, uh, and then Euronymous, uh, the leader of Mayhem, was murdered by his bandmate by Vikernes. And um so this whole thing it became like a real, you know, satanic panic, as you well know in the States what that is. So mm -hmm. like for a while, the churches were burning all over the Nordic countries, mostly in Sweden and Denmark, because there are so many connections in the bands. People had like really close ties. And there was also a murder by two uh, people in, in this, um, in this scene, in this scene uh, in 96 as well. So that, you know, that made the Norwegian black metal spread all over the world, of course. And this is something that the bands today are so tired of talking about. <laughs> but on the other hand, if that hadn't happened, I mean, looking at the quality of the music and basically the genre that was established 
through this, the bands had probably gotten to be known all over the world anyway. But, you know, you can't deny uh, the spectacularness, you know, the media, it was, there was, it was a media frenzy. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely here. It's the first thing that people think of um, when, when they think about yeah. the scene. And part of that is, you know, the book Lords of Chaos, that came up from Feral House. Part of it is yeah. the movie that was made out of that. And then of course, mm-hmm. you know, Varg made, uh, Varg got into people's attention again when he started becoming a, a Nazi uh, uh, vlogger during the Trump years. So he was a Nazi already back then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but he started collecting a following again, following again before yeah. he was kicked off YouTube. Um, but that's, I but, love it. I mean, I can, his, his uh, kind of, monologues in the woods in camouflage where it's kind of hypnotic i must say <laughs> definitely a bizarre individual um mm-hmm. but i i'm i'm not surprised that people are sick of talking about this so uh yeah the norwegian bands are so tired of it and i understand that too because you know it was it wasn't it wasn't all of the bands either you know and many people you know also i think when you wake up from the group psychosis that can happen, you know, when you, you're in a group and you're like, you know, discover that, Oh, did I really want to go this far? Maybe, you know, was I behind this or not? I mean, of course some people were and are and in Sweden as well and still stand by beliefs that are extreme. Uh, many aren't, uh, many does many don't, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, when Kerrang put Vari on the cover with a knife and then put it like a, uh, I mean, he was a good-looking guy, and you know, put a put a photo of him with a knife, and I I think I remember it was a like a bare-breasted uh, photo. Everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen." <laughs> he speaks about pissing on people's graves. Like, how can it get any more cooler? You know, it's stupid as an adult, of course, but back then it was just like, whoa. Uh, when I interviewed um, the singer in the Icelandic band Sol- uh, Solstafir. Uh, he said that Solstafir was actually formed after him seeing that photo of Varg in Kerrang! magazine. Okay. Yeah, I, I, rem- I remember that photo, actually. Um, yep. Talk about that group psychosis, though, because that that's really interesting. And that's obviously not, certainly not, um, you know, unique to music scenes. But uh, it is it is something that is part of growing up often, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's gangs or mm-hmm. uh, music or, or other groups. Uh, were were you and you know did you feel that you were drawn into that at the time or no, were you, you were kind of like comfortably observing from sweden yeah there was no group, I, group mind effect going on i never um i'm not drawn to violence and i'm not drawn to i i kind of stay away from violence and when people go black you know when they go dark i that scares me because of stuff in my background and being close to dark people, and um, so you mean so even when they even when they adopt the music style? Oh no, that's fine. But you okay. know, if if you see someone go dark and starting to shut down and maybe criticizing and starting to hate, I don't hate. Um, I'm not a hateful person, and many people uh, are drawn to black metal because of uh, the hateful aura especially back in the day, you know, and also especially when you're young, you find if you, for example, had, you you could have grown up in a terrible way and you have hate brewing inside you. Of course, you're drawn to, it's easy to be drawn to a a genre that kind of, that's kind of built on hate towards society, towards religion. I mean, towards people in many ways, black metal is a, a genre that's, against everything it's even against yourself i love i love the music i love black metal music but i i i've never been into the philosophy of it because i don't have that i'm kind of to be honest more of a death metal beer kind of girl okay (laughs) you know i like having a good time i like it when you're when i'm assaulted by sound okay but not by violence. Yes. So I was looking at it from afar and seeing some friends uh, disappear into this and being worried for them. And um, But it was very in- interesting to 
come back to it when we started researching the book. We worked on the book for like seven years um, because we wanted to get answers to certain questions, like what happened during those meetings in the Black Circle? Did uh, the singer of Abruptum, a Swedish black metal band, did he really, was he really locked into a coffin with a microphone to, you know, set his claustrophobia going to get the real anxiety screams? Yes, that was true. <laughs> you know, stuff that we were wondering, who was Peladad? How could a 17-year-old boy come even come to think of things as breathing in a dead bird, mm. uh, the scent of a dead bird? That's To me, that's like a really open mind, an artful open mind of a 17-year-old. So what we tried to do is, is delve into certain people that have been like really vital to the scene, who they were and how, why they came to influence the scene so much. So what was this like looking back on it as an adult at this point? Uh, I mean, you mentioned a couple things like it, it, some of these things now seem silly as an adult, but clearly this, if you worked on this book for seven years, this still has a Mm -hmm. hold on you. I mean, it's still part of you. So there's, there's a, you know, like you were saying, you needed to go back and get questions answered. So what, what was this, what was it like experiencing this again as an adult? It was really interesting because for many people, especially the people within the black metal scene, it was the first time that they had spoken about it and really thought about it. Um, nowadays, there are like thousands of black metal documentaries and books. But when we, when the book came out in Sweden, it was pretty much the first one after Lords of Chaos. And Lords of, the Lords of Chaos book... Um, I mean, I'm not going to say anything about it, but it's it's filled with at least the first uh, the first edition, which was the one I bought, is like filled with errors. Uh, and okay. um, you know, I mean, you you probably all know. So, I mean, there's and and they they really picked like only the worst things, and it's really not nuanced at all. I'm guessing that that all has been changed in later editions. And um, but that that was like the only testament to what had happened. And uh, so we wanted to, there were so many questions that came from the Lords of Chaos book, like, okay, so how did this happen? And, and you know, what do you, what do you think about it today? What you did, you know? I remember talking to Jon um, Christiansen, uh, he goes by the name Metallion. He, he is the editor of Slayer Mag, which is the absolute most important fanzine from back in the day. And, and he was like, you know, thinking back of it, he was like, I, we were brainwashed by ourselves, you know, and mm. uh, we had completely shaved off all empathy and there weren't that many, you know, that's the thing. It was a handful of people, but it, it became all the attention. It, it, it's of course it was, it was, um, okay. Trying to think of the word, um, you know, when you get drunk, it's uh, when you get really uh, affected um like, not buzzed but uh yeah but i'd like a more intellectual word <laughs> i can't i'm not sure yeah. i can't, can't come to think of it but it's like inebriating you yeah. know you get high on the attention intoxicated you get, yeah you get high on pushing the limits and then maybe you end up in a place where you necessarily didn't think you'd end up to begin with but by then you're so numbed and people were drinking a lot. I'm not sure that there was so much drugs back in those days, but you know, it becomes a whole, you know, back to the thing about the group psychosis. It's something is normalized uh within a group that's not normalized by society. And you know, there's comfort in being in a group. And there's comfort in also in being outsiders and you know challenging the norms. But it was only a few, it wasn't many years, but um, the effect it had was, you know, crazy when you look back on it. So, it still felt- so doing the book, a lot of people, um, I felt um, that a lot of people were relieved to talk about it, hmm. um, that they hadn't really done that before. And I think also me being, I mean, I wrote the book with a man. But we divided the chapters and I wrote all the black metal chapters because we felt that that 
it was easier for me as a woman and also someone had, that had been in the scene for a long time because we weren't that many women in the beginning. You know, we were like two people per city, basically. And even though I'm not from the black metal scene, you know, just them knowing that I was at the parties in 1989 or 1990, you know, this is such a, you know, a genre that is based on being authentic, authentic, authentic. So um, hmm. I think that made people trust me and um, tell, you know, really try to analyze what happened back then. So what were some of the things that they started talking about when they were analyzing it or stories they were telling? I mean, basically wondering themselves, how could it go so far? And why could uh, I uh, agree to such things? And why did, why did I, um, why was I so cold and shut off? that they were thinking aloud. And I mean, the chapter that means most to me personally, and and actually it's one of the most important texts that I've written, like after almost 30 years as a music journalist, is a chapter in this book about Pelle Dead. Um, because I found his family. I talked to his brother. And um, after this, I mean, he went to Norway. He died. And they never really found out what happened. And um, the whole thing had been like almost, it was a huge trauma for the family, of course. And when I spoke to the bass player, Jörn Stubberud, also known as Necrobutcher, who's still in the band, um, he's the one that, you know, quit after um, Jornamas had taken those photos of dead. And um, he was actually the only one that went to the funeral, but no one spoke to him because when he was there, because he represented Norway that had mm. basically killed Pelle in the views of the family. And I remember going home to Necrobutcher's house and, and when I when he dropped me off, he was like, please put me in contact with Pelle's family. Mm. So the brothers and sister, has they have met Mayhem. The old band that Pelle had in Sweden before going uh, to Norway and uh, playing with Mayhem has started playing again and has been in touch with the family. I mean, this is ten. This is almost. This is twelve years ago. So many people here know that, but but still, to me, to be able to to influence people's lives because it's been like a real catharsis for both the Mayhem guys and for the family and for the old friends because. You know, people were furious. They were, they were, you know, friends here were trying, were planning to go to Norway to kill Euronymous, you know. And uh, when this, I mean, the photos did surface on a Colombian bootleg. Um, so the family still to this day fights um, and tries to uh, stop the photo being shown. The photo was, of course, shown in Lord of Chaos, mm. uh, the book, and tries to just like stop it. And they still, they work every day with it still. That's, they work every day with it. That's, that's constant it trauma. It pops up on the internet all the time. So he's, I mean, Anders, when he, the, one of his brothers, every time he Googles Pelle, which is like maybe not every day, but like it, it's a constant work. He's always has to be prepared that that image is going to come up. That's really hard. And it's awful, you yeah. know, but I can also, and even Anders can also, the family can also see how people would think that's cool because it's so out there and it's so bizarre and it's so vicious. But as a family, of course, they want it, you know, off the internet, off from the yeah. world forever, but they can still like, okay, if I take a step back, you know, and I have friends that have pieces of Pella's skull that he sent out to different, like that Euronymous sent out to different people. And you know, people can today, it's, it's, you get caught up in it, like, oh, so cool, a skull. And then, you know, and the brother calls, like, hey, can I get my brother's head back? Hmm. And they're like, oh, yes, this is actually a human being. Yeah. Because he's been, he, Pelle's become so iconic. So it's hard to, you know, uh, draw the line for people. But I can understand both sides. And so can, so can the family, even though it's hurtful. What was that? What was that meeting like? I mean, did they come to uh, some type of... Um understanding or uh, rapprochement but i mean i mean um Jorn, i mean he quit the band after the f photo so he never did anything wrong you know but i think um it was harder i think for the family meeting the drummer who was actually still in the band and didn't leave the band 
and I'm not, I c- but also time, there's been so much time. So I think it was just basically comforting for both of them and, and for the family to be able to ask so many questions because they didn't have much contact with Pelle before. I mean, he was also super depressed. And some people think that Euronymous, you know, egged him on to do it. Other people don't think that at all. And we'll never know because both are dead. But it's uh, it was important to me and I was, uh, you know, what began as just trying to understand who is this artist that created all this. And also he was the one that, you know, started with the corpse paint, wanting to look dead. And also I was the first one who wrote about, you know, because he was always talking about that he'd had a, a an experience, a near-death experience. And... Um, he never really said what it was. He said he was had fell on ice. But the thing is, he was actually beaten up in school so bad that his spleen ruptured and he almost died. And that's what would happen because he was so bullied in school because he was, you know, a special person, one that probably today would get a diagnose, slapped on him pretty directly, you know. So, but that's what it was. He was so severely beaten in school by schoolmates. Yeah. So it was interesting that how, you know, I I never, I could never have imagined what that text would end up like when, when I started working on it and started researching it. And so what was the difference in what, when you started and what you thought it was going to be and then what it became, what was the difference? I had no idea what I was going to find out. I didn't even know if I was going to find his family or if they, if they wanted to talk to me, you know, it took years to get them to talk to me. Mm. And then, you know, when they were so open and, and very courageous in what they wanted to say, um, I was just very grateful and that it also led to differences in many people's lives, uh, that were, that were, you know, had connections with Pelle back in the day. So, but I mean, the whole, so many things happened that during the time we wrote the book that people who were who were initially skeptical to um, to contributing changed their minds, and uh, so that's basically a lot of stuff. I mean, I also had two kids. I mean, there were reasons to why it took so long. One, you know, we, we had just re- regular jobs, and we did this in our spare time. But it was the book um, greatly. Um, became a lot better from it, uh, I would say. So we chose, I mean, there are some um, chapters on bands, but there are also chapters on like subjects, which more, that is more like um, general chapters on metal and politics, metal and money, metal and gender, and metal and the media, I think it was as well. Do you want to touch on what some of those, uh, some of that was that you delved into? Uh, which, which ones do you mean? Well, the, the four you just mentioned, I mean, that's, there's a lot mm-hmm. of subjects there. I mean, I, if I can, I can, I can give a short run through of what the chapters are. Okay. We wanted to, what we wanted to do with the book was to try to get an understanding of why Swedish extreme metal has been so successful and to get an idea of who the vital people were and what was going on in their minds and to try to explain the different you know aspects of it so we of course chose to um do a cha- do a chapter on Bathory which is an early proto black metal band uh we have Nifelheim which is also a black metal band which is not that big but they're so black metal and they're so so much into metal and the authenticity um, idea of it. So it's that's the first chapter. You're kind of thrown into this world of you know super long spikes and uh, children's coffins on stage. And but they have like a they're really good at talking about it. So and they are they're also like um, famous here because of an ad that was like um, shown many years back. Um, but so, so it's Bathory, it's Nifelheim, it's, um, of course, the Entombed, which uh, started off the Swedish death metal scene. And we have um, Dissection, which is a Swedish black metal band that was uh, really important in the 90s. 
And we have Shining, which is a band that's not super, that's not really big, but they're they're in there to represent what is called the depressive metal genre, <laughs> which is basically another name for suicidal black metal, which kind of only has to do with wanting people to kill themselves, uh, which was a genre I didn't know about before <laughs> starting to write the book, um, but which is uh, pretty Pretty big, actually. And then uh, we have uh, Vatain, which is uh, the Sweden's foremost black metal band today. And uh, what am I, maybe I'm kind of forgetting something. Those are hmm. basically the bands. Probably something more that I maybe have forgotten. <laughs> we have Pededad and Mayhem, of course, that I spoke about. But then I also have like the, the, the more general... Um, uh, sub um, chapters on death metal, like the whole death metal revolution and the black metal revolution in general, and also power metal. Hmm. And, um, and also uh, I wanted to delve into the economics uh, because so many bands were um, used by record companies in the beginning. Used. And too many, yeah, they yeah. were, um, what do you call it when someone's, when someone totally, uh, Rips you off, yeah. Yeah. Like Entombed yeah, is the it's most... Yeah, a classic uh, story in the music business. Yeah, Entombed is the most famous example. I mean, they've sold... They were so huge. I don't think Eric like, paid them almost anything. Mm -hmm. And they still released the records, you know? So many bands, because they were teenagers, they signed really, really, really bad contracts. And we wanted to look into that. We wanted to look into how metal has been... Um, you know, handled in the media and all the fan scenes, of course, and metal and politics, because, um, I mean, it is interesting how death metal is seen as a more leftist sort of genre and black metal as a sort of more far right kind of genre. So that was interesting to us to, um, to look into that. And also to me, as a woman, I wanted to explore the gender, mm. uh, the diversity uh, perspective. Did the political, the, did the, that political divide become more of a thing in the last seven years or so, you know, with everything that's been going on in the world? Um, no, it's always been there. Okay. I would say, because and I mean, you could kind of, if you want to generalize, you could describe death metal as a collectivistic you want to sit down have a good time and have a beer with your pals and you want to look at a horror movie and you just want to have a good time while black metal is more intellectual it's more an individualist um kind of genre and it's more interested in the dark sides and it's uh, built on hate and evil you know and exploring those sides often in a more intellectual way as well. Um, so um, just by the pure nature of the genres, uh, it would be described as, I mean, it would be kind of put easy to put them on the political different sides of the spectrum. So I wouldn't say that it's, it's been more in the last like seven years by which I, I, I imagine that you mean that the, Many governments have turned to yes. far right leaders yes. Yes. as as well as in Sweden, not leaders, but they're in the government now, and it's kind of just uh, yeah, that's happening like everywhere. But but um, I'm not sure if maybe nationals. I mean, there is a Nazi black metal subgenre called NSBM, which is a genre that I don't really follow, so I don't know if it's been getting bigger. I'm not sure. I can't answer that. So when you were looking at gender and diversity, that, that, uh, what did you find there? That's, you were saying that was your favorite topic to look into. Well, it was an interesting topic to me because I've always been a female and male dominated, uh, environments. And I was curious to talk to other people, both men and females, male and females, just to see others, others, um, their view on things and how they had, um, you know, experience things. And as a woman, at least back in the day, um, you get questioned more. Um, people don't really think you like the music for real. Um, you have to know much more 
um, if you have, I mean, you can get this story from like any female musician that, you know, people don't think they can plug in their instruments. People don't think they know anything. If you have a band shirt back in the day, you could be, you had to be prepared that people would ask you questions about the band on the shirt because um, just to check that you actually could. So, but this is interesting because all the females I spoke to in this chapter had the same experiences. And while working on this uh, exhibition that I, that is on right now in Berlin, I did uh, interview interviews with like four or five artists from each country in the Nordic region. And one of my subjects was diversity. But getting, you can't get a man post me too to say anything negative on film about what they might have thought of women 30 mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. Everyone I spoke to was like, yo, I've always loved female metal bands. <laughs> no, I've always thought it was great with women in our group. You know, no, I always thought they knew it had their place and they were equals. I just sat there gaping. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I can't, you know, I can't question you individually, but this is just pure bullshit. Mm. Because so I was like, but can't you speak generally? I know you, of course, in the in this day of canceling, you say something wrong and you're out. I can understand. But I was like, can't you speak generally? Like, no, no, this is what I think. It was crazy. Mm. It was crazy. But talk to any woman and you you'll find that most the utmost majority would have the same experience as me. Do you feel that that's, this has changed a lot though? That's what I was going to ask next. Do you feel that yeah. it, that's been addressed in the current scene? Yeah. I mean, it's still, I mean, in the audience, I would say that many death and black metal shows is 50, 50, but on stage, not much has happened on stage. Arch okay. enemy has happened. And, uh, you know, some other bands, Nightwish, if you consider that extreme. Um, of course, there are more women on stage, but there aren't many. There aren't even, you know, there's so few. And what's interesting is that it's really hard to figure out if it's, you know, in this day of equality, at least in our countries up here, everything needs to be 50-50, no matter what. No major, even if there aren't 50% women, it needs to be 50% because of a political idea that it has to be. Um, so it's not that female bands aren't giving the chances, but also as a female, do you want to be given a chance because you're a female? Right. Um, do you feel that you dare going on stage and facing the criticisms? Or do you feel... Um, that is just too much work. It's really hard to know uh, why, because the problem isn't. I mean, I have not a. I don't have a problem with the fact that it just might be so that fewer women are interested in playing this kind of music on stage. That just might be the fact. That's totally okay. But what's not okay if is if um, females don't dare to because they feel that the. Uh, it would be too hard to feel the resistance, you know, but I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but we can just look at the facts. There are so few females in metal bands. And then I don't know what to do with that info, but that's just the way it is. Hmm. But there are a lot of women working behind the scenes, so many managers, festival organizers, record labels. So you know, people say like, yeah, maybe girls don't like this aggressive kind of music. Well, that's just not true. Not at all. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, I don't know. It might change in the future. It might not. I don't know. One of the things that's been so interesting is the mindset that people get into. And particularly with black metal, it's almost like there's a transformation or initiatory process that goes on with the corpse paint and adopting extreme ideologies. Um, and I don't know how long people can maintain that before they burn out or, or just get burnt. But that has always been really interesting to me. And is that something that's still... Okay, well, my first question in regard to that is, what exactly was that mindset in the early 90s that you talk about? You mentioned people getting into this kind of mindset. What was it? What world were they living in internally that produced all of this? Mm. 
it's hard to generalize, but back in, I mean, being a teenager, feeling like an outsider, and then, and maybe also feeling hate towards society and life in general, because you had a, you know, traumatic upbringing in whichever way that could be. And then finding this community of like-minded people and letting that hate breed, I think it's quite easy for that to happen. And so like in the, in this wave, in the nineties wave of black metal, it was, you know, pretty basic kind of occultism and Satanism that was practiced just kind of fueling the hatred and, you know, to fuel hatred, that's pretty easy when you try to just find reasons to, but what has happened since then is 30 years ago. And of course, those kind of bands are still there today, um, often young bands, but the older bands um, are more intellectually uh, into occultism. And I believe, or at least my view of it is that a lot of people use um, the music for for personal uh, development and to explore spirituality and individuality within themselves and I mean there are so many black metal so many well there's many black metal bands today that it doesn't have to do a lot with you know, expressing violence towards others. It has to do with exploring the black flame within yourself, you know, awakening the instincts that we all have and the darkness that we all have. Uh, and, and to see how can I use that in everyday life? How can I use that within my art? Um, how can I use that in rituals to, you know, reach a higher state of awareness? So I would say that there are several black metal bands today that are practicing Satanism or occultism at a pretty high level, like far off from what you did when you were young, you know, mm-hmm. and you had, you thought Anton LaVey was cool, you know, that right. was like the utmost. And um, so it's very different from band to band, I would say. And also many of the bands that's been around for so long. I mean, I'm not sure that, all of them identify as Satanists or anything, but I mean, you still kind of have a belief in something, but it, of course it doesn't have to do with, you know, using violence unprovoked. Um, It's more of an introverted intellectual thing. Definitely. And also I think that a lot of people, you know, have used it in a really productive way too, you know? I mean, there's this band um, that's uh, Vatain that um, have spoken, like the first media-friendly black metal band in Sweden. Um, First of all, they're really good. And uh, so they get a lot of attention. But uh, the singer Erik also is really good at talking about these subjects in a way that people can understand. And they, they speak about, you know, building a temple on stage and releasing things and they don't they not only want to you know affect your seeing your your sight and your hearing they also throw rotten blood on stage and bathe in rotten blood because they want you your um, smell uh, all the senses possible to be affected so you can get into a sort of meditative state or ecstatic state. Um, so they work uh, very deliberately with mm-hmm. um, trying to create a ritual with, uh, with in at every gig, and that's what. And I've, I mean, I think that was like people what people wanted to do in the nineties too, but they didn't have the uh, instruments for it. You know, yeah. they didn't have the tools. They didn't have the intellectual tools. So. I would say that uh, black metal bands today, and of course there's also just black metal bands that just love the music and maybe aren't practicing anything on top of that, you know. Um, they're all, also, all sorts of bands, but those are, that are most interesting are the more intellectual ones, I think. That is very interesting. I mean, uh, you know, the combination of music and 
the occult or new age religion is certainly not unique to black metal. I mean, they've, they're, 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 they've been fast friends for a long time, but the thing that's always impressed me about black metal is it's one of those scenes or micro scenes where people really do take it intellectually seriously. And, um, that's impressive to see. I mean, it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but you can tell people are very sincere in what they're doing. It's also very powerful music, you know, um, it's very loud. It's extremely chaotic. And within that, that's what I like about it. I mean, black metal is not necessarily something I listen to very often at home. I like seeing it live because you're in, you know, you're in the eye of the storm. I can, I can, you know, reach some sort of total calmness when everything just swirls, you know, the music just like, you know, it's, it's chaos around you. And I just, you know, feel completely calm. And um, that's what I like about it. I like the the sonic assault of it. Got it. And I also like the, uh, I like when, I mean, I can like also just like a moshy kind of death metal band, just like, whoa. But I like a show. I like when people have ambitions to set something up that's special. And they use fire and pyro and you know, they're, when people have really thought out a stage set, um, I really appreciate that uh, in, in music, in any sort of genre, because I, I, I don't only listen to metal at all. And um, yes, I, I kind of like pretensions. I think when you have high, you know, it's being pretentious is often used like as a bad thing, but I think it's could be a really good thing too. Hmm. I guess the last question I want to ask then is, is there a transformation that you feel that you've undergone being involved in this scene, a, a personal transformation or otherwise? That is so hard to say since <laughs> I've been listening to metal since I was pretty much wearing diapers. Okay. I don't know. To me, metal is um, something that gives me strength and always has. And I discovered that while writing the book too. Metal can make you go to school when you don't want to. Metal can prepare you for a really hard meeting. Metal can make you resilient when you just want to cry. I mean, I'm almost 50 and I still, if I have a bad day, put on like really loud music and get on the bus to work and just sit there like, duh, fuck you all, I hate you. And then like, Hello, I'll have my coffee now, please. You know, you know, people are are often um, surprised at how calm and nice people are at metal festivals. That's a thing that there are so little fights and violence at the extreme metal festivals. It's because I think a lot of us get our frustrations out through the music. And I mean, there's been studies actually done on this at universities that, you know, it's a catalyst for stuff you have inside. So maybe it's so, I don't think I've been transformed consciously, but maybe I've just been molded into this. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I uh, I think that's what it does for me. Makes me strong and that I feel cool when I... Feel wimpy inside. <laughs> oh, that sounds that sounds wonderful. Do you want to tell people yeah. about where to get the book and and where to find out more about you? Yes, I'm guessing that the book can be bought at any sort of online store, and but I I think you should go to the Feral House website um, because I think they sell it there, um, and um, and there are lots of other good books on this uh, subject as well. And what I really think people should do is to go to a concert because this is a music this is music that's meant to be experienced live so if you can go to an extreme metal concert you will be welcomed um it's a very at least i'm not sure if it's the same in the states i'm hoping so but in europe it's a very welcoming environment if you're interested people are pretty often prone to being welcoming and nice and uh, to explain how stuff works and um yeah Try to experience it and read the book. And I mean, I wrote the book with my mom in my mind. I want my mom to be able to 
understand. So the book is not like super nerdy in any way. It's it's basically, you know, a reportage book about um, people and artists and a movement, and it's written in a way that that uh, everyone can uh, understand it. At least I hope so. I think so. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Sounds wonderful. Well, thank thank you very much for taking the time to do uh, do the show. Well, thank you. Nice to meet you. You too. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic meditation and mysticism where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class and until next time, hang in there.